Turns out Sofia Coppola knows how to make a movie. There is a giant possum in our backyard. Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I'm one of your co-hosts, Pete Romberg, and joining me, as always, is my co-host... Uh, Martha Sullivan, and I would like to apologize for the quality of my audio. I had to turn my laptop in because girl got a new job. Oh yeah. I was... <laughs> As I was starting this intro, I was like, oh no, does Martha want to talk about the new job? Is this like public facing knowledge yet? Uh, can I oh, yeah. bring it up? I mean, so I'm, say... I'm glad that you, you know, brought it up first. Yes. Um, so for any of our listeners out there who do not know, which is probably none of you, because I think the only three people who listen to our show are friends of ours. Uh, and, well, um... Specifically, though, a guy I played D&D with just started following the show shout out uh so we'll see if he tunes in um i got a job at the my favorite library that i've ever worked at um they are the first library that i worked at right out of library school and now i get to return to them in a full-time managerial position and i am just truly ecstatic about it and so good things do happen you're you're managing the teen section specifically right so it's literally like literally your dream job Correct. Mm -hmm. I will be solely focused on teen services, which is my dream. It is not everybody's dream, which I acknowledge and Uh respect, but Uh it is my dream. So, (laughs) um, yeah, I am working on wrapping up my current position and transitioning to the new one. And part of that was returning the laptop that I've been using to record the show on for the past uh, two years. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, well that's very exciting and here's hoping that your new library which is also closer to you than your old one so that's nice um hopefully they give you a laptop too uh, although you don't sound too bad or i just start being a bum oh good <laughs> you know the other option is that i stop being a bum and get a working laptop of my own you know there's, <laughs> that there's is not that the option. property of the of the person employing me <laughs> there is that option too i recognize that i'm i'm a laptop guy like i don't like interacting with the internet even on like an ipad i'm like give me a physical keyboard and also everything i do for work basically requires a laptop so i'm going to be you know happily shackled to a, a laptop for years to come uh but i i recognize that many people can be like i don't need a laptop i use it to browse the internet and i can do that on a on my phone or on a tablet um people are wrong but that's a fine that's a fine take (laughs) uh all right well speaking of of possibly wrong possibly fine possibly great takes uh today uh sort of in honor of memorial day but also that was just sort of our initial thought process uh we're going to be talking about anti-war war films and whether it's possible to even make one this comes back from an old francois Truffaut quote uh, of it is impossible to make an anti-war film. What he was getting at is the idea of war on cinema is so visually exciting that any anti-war movie inherently will create an, a, a bit of an excitement for war. A great example of this, I think, is um, Saving Private Ryan. But we're going to be looking at two movies that might actually fit the bill one way or the other of creating an anti-war war film, trying to see if this old adage still holds up. 
We'll get a lot more into that after our break. But first, as always, we're gonna go with what's stuck in our heads. This is whatever piece of pop culture we want to be talking about before we get into the main part of the episode. Uh, so, Martha, what is stuck in your head? So, a couple of years ago, I played a cute little indie game on the Switch. It took about mm, four or five hours called Coffee Talk where you play a barista in a Seattle coffee shop that is open uh, at nighttime. The world in which this game takes place is one where um, very recently, it is like, it is like a cyberpunk type world where like recently elves and werewolves and like all of the magical creatures have come out of quote unquote hiding and are now living amongst humans. So is this like a shadow run kind so, of situation? It is a, yeah, it's not as cyberpunk. It's more like if you just took our situation right now and was like, oh, and my coworker's an elf. Okay, cool. <laughs> oh, and it's not like shadow, it's not like cyberpunk in that people spontaneous, spontaneously became these things. It's more like a true blood situation mm, where they've they always been here like, and now revealed they're... their existence. Sure, sure. But honestly, all of that kind of secondary to the fact that you play a barista in a coffee shop and all of the gameplay is about the customers who come to your coffee shop um to talk to you and the major game mechanic is they describe what drink they want and you put it together with the ingredients that you have in your shop and then they tell you you either got it right or got it wrong and then if you do really really well you get better endings at the end of it sure um but then you get to watch like the conversations and the relationships develop between um your customers and they hash stuff out and anyway all of this is to say that the sequel just got released and it is so warm and charming and lovely and it's really just a a wonderful like story-based low-key character-driven experience um the whole soundtrack is like lo-fi mm -hmm. <laughs> lo-fi study jams mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and like you have a little tracker that shows you more information about your customers as you get to know them better they've added a little fake twitter like social media element so you can see the stuff that people post sure sure and yeah it's just like a little slice of life um slice of life visual novel that I, i'm i'm so excited that they made another one and i'm just having a really lovely peaceful time playing and meeting my meeting my old friends and uh meeting new ones nice and uh, you might have said this already, but what is it on? Is the Switch? Is this the phone? I'm playing it on the Switch. You mm. can get it, I think, on everything. Okay, sure, sure. That that kind of game. It's not. Yeah, like a phone the app original. Or... Yeah, the original one first came out on Steam, and then came out on console platforms, and I think Chapter Two released simultaneously mm -hmm. on everything. It's a really good handheld game, though, because it's like small and pretty intimate and it feels a little bit like just reading a little bit before bed <laughs> only <laughs> this book comes with a lo-fi soundtrack <laughs> quick little 15 minute decompression before you turn off the lights kind of uh, vibe yeah pretty much nice nice how about you what's stuck in your head well unfortunately speaking of switch games 
What is not stuck in my head is Tears of the Kingdom, the new Zelda game, because I don't have time to play it right now, and I'm not going to buy it if I don't have time to actually sit down and play it. So I have been passively consuming a lot of content about it in, like, just some pure masochistic, you know, nonsense. Um, so I think what, like... To be most honest, I think what's stuck in my head the most of the past couple weeks is, and you can feel free to laugh at me for this one, uh, it's the trailer for Killers of the Flower Moon, Martin Scorsese's movie that just premiered at Cannes over the weekend and is coming out in the fall. Pete, it's such a good trailer. It It is an amazing trailer. I finished watching it and I shouted, Cinema's back! It, it's back. Uh, we've got everyone and we've got Marty doing a four hour film that I'm going to be, you know, not in the front row for because I don't like sitting in the front row, but I'm going to be first lining up to sit for four hours in a movie theater and have, you know, see this story shown to me on a big screen. I'm so excited. So I'm also really excited about this movie. I was very concerned because you have a, an old white filmmaker who is making a movie that is a story about the pain and suffering of an indigenous tribe. Um, But apparently Scorsese did a lot of consultation work with um, the descendants of the victims of the Osage nation Mm -hmm. murders Mm -hmm. and like involved them on the set and um just like it, it sounds like he really approached this with like sensitivity and care and made sure that these voices were the ones that were being like involved and amplified. Um, a gentleman who was a previous chief of uh, the Osage Nation has a lovely Twitter thread. Um, he got to see the premiere at Cannes and he was talking about just how impressed he was with. Um, the communication that Scorsese had with him and all of the families. And yeah, I think it really sounds like a best case scenario did for you, this story. Did you read the deadline uh, interview slash article about it? Uh, it's it's an I interview with It's an interview with Scorsese and a general wide ranging article about the production in general. Um, really, really incredible. I, so I have not read the book that this is based on. Uh, and obviously the book itself is like investigative. What would like... What is that genre even called? Like it's, it's true, true crime? crime. Okay, true crime. Um, yeah. Uh, but the book is all about Jesse Plemons' character, who plays like the FBI agent investigating the crimes, and this is at the very beginning of the FBI. Uh, this, this, you know, to 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 remove all the humanity from it, this case sort of makes the FBI into what it is now in some ways. Um, and that was originally the story that Scorsese was going to tell, but through developing it and partly through DiCaprio. Because uh, DiCaprio was originally going to play this FBI guy, but eventually it was just like, I don't, this is a boring true crime movie when we structure it that way. Like, there's no heart to it. There's no like, there's no emotional there there. And so instead, they completely changed the structure. Uh, Jesse Plemons now plays the FBI guy, and he's still there, but he's not the focus of the movie like he is in the book. Instead, we're focusing on DiCaprio, who is the husband of one of the Osage women, and his uncle, uh, De Niro, spoilers for a real-life event that happened a hundred years ago, um, is sort of the mastermind of these killings. So it, it really is all about the, like, that that deep human interaction of, like, this is a man who loves his wife— but is also either 
knowingly or unknowingly or maybe willingly put up blinders uh, to what was happening around him, uh, you know, embroiled in this situation where his wife's family is being murdered one by one for their oil, their land, and their money. And that that is such a more interesting story that's being told than just, like, white FBI agent comes in to save the day. Yeah, it sounds like they completely reworked the script during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To like address concerns that the um because I mean the the family members of the people who were killed are still around. Yeah. And like I I am just really glad that they approached this with sensitivity to the fact that we are talking about like family members of people that are still around to be affected by this story. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad that you're not giving me grief about being excited for a trailer <laughs> and, and having it like live rent free in my head. Uh, have you, it, have you met me? I feel I, like <laughs> I know, I know, I know, but you know, it's like, there's, you know, <laughs> it's, it's fair to be like, Oh, a trailer is what's stuck in your head. But like, this trailer. Well, sure, mm. but also mm. I am who I am. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that was what was stuck in our heads. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be looking at the possibility of even creating an anti-war war movie. And we'll talk about the details of that uh, and the, the two movies that were your homework when we come back. And we are back. So today, we're talking about the idea of anti-war war movies. And specifically what I wanted to focus on on this one, we, we were sort of kicking around the edges of what this looks like. I think it's very possible to make an anti-war movie that is not about the war proper. Something like Grave of the Fireflies, where you never actually see combat. I wanted to steer clear of those things because I think what makes this idea of, quote, it's impossible to make an anti-war film interesting is because of the the visceral nature of combat and how that shown on screen is inherently exciting and inherently undercuts the idea, uh, like any anti-war ideas you might be having. Um, so we left aside any war movie that was not about the war proper, anything that dealt with civilians, anything that dealt with, um, you know, sort of, yeah, like basically civilians. So these are two proper war movies. Uh, I also think the two most fertile grounds for these, the two wars that are the most fertile ground for anti-war movies are World War I and Vietnam. Uh, World War II, you're always going to have the fact that that was the good war. I, I think it's impossible to make an anti-war movie about World War II, including uh, the film version of Slaughterhouse-Five and the film version of Catch-22, both of which are great anti-war books, but I don't think worked as anti-war films per se, partly because that's not what they were about. Um, so we picked one movie from World War One, one movie from Vietnam. Our World War One pick was the last year's 2022 Netflix, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, an adaptation of an incredible anti-war novel. And our Vietnam movie was 1979's Apocalypse Now, a vague adaptation of Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, this one was a little bit trickier. Uh, we found out after we picked it that it's basically impossible to, to rent anywhere. Um, 
I ended up buying it because whatever, that's fine. So I watched the 1979 version. Martha, you got this on DVD from the library, but yours was the Redux, which was from 2001 and is 45 minutes longer. And I just found out you had done some prior research. There's actually a 2019 version, which is the definitive cut. Um... I think all of this is like final cut. Final cut. Thank you. Uh, this is all just a little in the weeds. Coppola, like George Lucas and Michael Mann, can't stop fiddling with his, you know, movies. Um, so we might, we might, you know, as as we're talking about Apocalypse Now, it might be a bit of a like, oh, that scene wasn't in the version I saw, or like, oh, this worked for me, but not for you because of the way it was edited. Uh, but it's it, that's you know the base text is Apocalypse Now here, and then all the various iterations depending on what you end up seeing. Um, do we want to talk, we probably should have talked about this during the break, uh, do we want to just focus, like, do All Quiet first and then Apocalypse Now, uh, structure it that way? That sounds uh, reasonable. It's up to you. How yeah. do you want to approach it? That sounds reasonable. Let's, let's go chronologically, because otherwise we're chrono-illogical. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so we'll start with All Quiet on the Western Front, um, 2020, 2022, wow, I cannot say the, that year. Oh, by chronologically, you meant of the wars, not the movies. Yes, I sorry, I do mean of the wars, not the movies. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> um, so this is a 2022 movie uh, adaptation of the 1929 novel by Eric Maria uh, Remarque. Uh, this is directed by Edward Berger and stars Felix Kammerer, uh, and Daniel Bruhl, among others. Kammerer plays Paul Baumer, a young, idealistic boy, a German boy who enlists in the Imperial German Army uh, and is thrown into World War I's Western Front, a famously chill and cool place. Um, and so the movie is mostly about Paul's experiences there. The book is entirely about Paul's experiences there. Uh, but the movie also is interweaving uh, Daniel Bruhl playing a uh, high-ranking member of the um, government trying to sue for peace in the last days of the war. We're in 1917. We're approaching November 11th when the armistice takes place. Um, the entire book is about both the horrors of the war, but also the banality of the war and the the psychological trauma of the soldiers as they are sort of cycled to the front where everything is awful and then away from the front, which is almost even worse because you get that glimpse of like normalcy before you have to go back into the meat grinder of the front. Uh, and also it's the German army nearing the end of the war. They are low on supplies or in trench rat. You know, whereas the, the French have proper food and, and all the rest of it. Um, I I think you liked this movie far less than I did. I thought this movie had effective and moving battle sequences, but did not really... So much of the book, I don't think, works as a film. And I think the power of those scenes in the book just doesn't happen here. And also intercutting with the, the Daniel Brühl stuff really didn't work for me. I, I got what it was trying to do of really creating a sense of like the grunts in the trenches versus the like, you know, the, the generals in their, uh, you know, palaces, uh, idea, but it, it didn't quite fit right for me. Um, but you, you had a much more negative experience with this. I found this movie abhorrent. Okay. Um, 
And you, I, uh, I, I have read the book and you have not. So let's, let's correct. lay that out and then go from and there. And I, I would like to work, I would like to work backwards from what the director has said his intent for this movie was, because mm-hmm. I think that is where a lot of my feel. So first of all, the movie itself, I don't think is anything special. Like it is, I have seen this movie 1200 times. I watch all the best pictures nominees for the Oscars every year. Mm-hmm. I've seen this movie before. <laughs> like, I I don't particularly feel like this movie is offering anything different from, say, like, a 1917, which at least had kind of an interesting gimmick mm-hmm. in its, like, one-shot take. Um, I read quite a, few, uh, quite a few interviews with the director, Edward Berger, because I was really trying to get to what his intent of this what this movie was and i felt like i was getting a lot of conflicting information from him like he has one interview where first he talks about wanting to film it very objectively to like take the emotion out but then also wanting to put the audience like in the fear and what his characters are feeling and i'm like you can't have that cake and eat it too Mm -hmm. um you know, he talks about wanting to make it a very German film, which I think necessarily makes it an anti-war movie. Um, I don't know. I I really, really struggled with this because at the end of the day, what you get is a lot of very bleak, very stark horror movie level violence that is happening to characters that the movie never bothers to let you get to know. So there's no real emotional impact when they die. It's just sort of visceral and disgusting. And then you get to the end and like your main character, Paul is hollowed out and dead inside. And as an audience member, so am I. And if that is the experience he's trying to create, then I guess well done. But also as an audience member, I don't find that to be, rewarding or unique or like i don't take away anything from that experience Mm -hmm. like i just get to the end and i'm like well that's up to watch and then i don't think about it again it it visually (laughs) captured it visually captured the horror of world war one but you already knew that world war one was horrible and that's the other thing i don't know that this movie tells us anything new like the the predominant message of war movies is that war is hell and yes and that is what i'm getting from this movie and i don't think that there's enough other story happening like i i wonder if he is focusing so much on getting that across that he forgot that he actually needs to tell a story with his movie because like there are no characters that i'm involved in the only real emotional investment i have is with daniel Bruhl's sequences in the negotiation with France, which also, if you're trying to make an if you're trying to make an anti-war movie, maybe don't make your opposition into total horrible monsters. I was um, I was actually okay with that in a way. So uh, continue, and then and then I'll say my piece. I just I, I I felt like it was a lot of a lot of mess with not a lot of direction. Um, I also, and this is going to come up, this is going to come up again when we talk about Apocalypse Now, but 
war movies frequently use a lot of the same language as horror cinema does. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this movie, it does the same thing. Like there are shots in this movie that look like a haunted house or like they came out of the conjuring. And the problem that I had was not borrowing that cinematic language, but that I couldn't tell what they were trying to say with it. And again, I think that comes back to the fact that there's no story here. It's just a bunch of kids went off to war and died. (laughs) And that's, that's it. And I don't know that that's enough to hang a movie on. Hmm. So I, this is all, this is all very interesting to me because like having read the book, the, the point of the book is basically like, a bunch of kids went off and died for nothing. And this was all a bunch of, of nonsense. Um, you know, World War One like, famously creates an entire wave of, like, broken men afterwards, but also a, re- a wave of poetry um, and art, like, trying to grapple with what people experienced during it. And, of course, you have the famous poem that ends, you know, Dolce et decorum est pro patria more. Um, et, like, you know, it, the, the old lie, Dolce et decorum est pro patria more, of, like, it is, it is glorious and honorable to die for one's fatherland. And that's what the book is about. It's about sending up that, like, like, basically saying, like, this, this old nationalist idea is BS and it killed millions of boys for nothing and look at the trauma they experienced. Um, I, I was very okay with the French being just as bad as, like, or even worse than the Germans because that was, like, uh, I, I think that guy was supposed to be Petian, who, or... But see, I I, 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 cannot, were... I cannot pronounce French names, so I'm going to say that right off the bat. <laughs> um, uh, Petain, I guess. And he was that kind of, like, the. I think the point of this movie, and I think what the director is trying to get at, possibly unsuccessfully, is the idea of, like, you have the boys in the trenches who are living through hell. And then you have the old men generals who are fighting the last war, who are still remembering the, you know, um, the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, when the Germans steamrolled the French, had forced them to sign an embarrassing treaty in Versailles, and captured some land. And that's, and like, on the German side, that was like, yes, big, proud, nationalist moment. This created Germany. It literally created Germany. And on the French side, it's like, oh, it's so embarrassing that we lost, and they, they, stomped us, blah, blah, blah. We're the heirs of Napoleon. How could this happen? And so the generals still have all that kicking around, and that's that's their major hang-up. So they're still talking about, like, do it for the fatherland, do it because God's on our side, make your fathers proud, and then you actually get to the war itself, and it's it's World War One, which is the mechanized horror show of World War One. Um, and so it's that, like, it's that generational disconnect, it's that class disconnect uh, I think that's what the director is trying to convey through those scenes. I don't. I oh, I, I thought it was not... all very heavy-handed, um, and not that effective. Basically, partly because I knew what was going to happen, so I'm like, I don't, this Daniel Brühl stuff isn't working for me at all. Um, and and also, I, I will say that the the third act of this movie is radically different from the book in a way that I think is vastly to its detriment. Yeah, I um, had to, again, I did a little bit of reading about the stabbed in the back (laughs) (laughs) Germanic uh, nationalist Yes, luckily that had had no (laughs) negative consequences during the 20s or 30s. So, uh, 
It's all good. <laughs> Did not lead to the rise of Nazism in the least. Um, I would also just like to touch really quickly on the score of this movie, which I believe you very much enjoy. Yes, no? Uh, so it won Best Picture. Uh, sorry, it won Best Original. It absolutely did not. <laughs> the, score, the score won Best Picture by itself. It was an upset. No one expected it. Uh, no, the, the score won Best Original Score. At the time, I did not think that was too wild because I thought it was an interesting score. I will still stand by that for a World War One movie, it is doing some interesting things. It's very mechanical. It's very Hans Zimmery, which is not what you expect from a movie like this necessarily. Um... There were moments where I thought it was working, but in hindsight, I don't think it should have won Best Original Score. I mean, I liked the score, but I also liked the score from Mad Max Fury Road, and that's what this is. Like, no, maybe no, this is don't this is score. More, this is more maybe subdued. don't score your movie like a heavy metal bass concert. Maybe. So just so putting that out there. I, I kind of like it. So the, the opening scene of this movie is, I think, incredible. And it in and of itself would make this a great anti-war movie. Um, because it, it is about a, a guy, I think his name is Hans, maybe. He goes up over the top, he dies, and then we follow his clothes, his uniform, as they get laundered, repaired, and given to Paul Balmer, who then naively is like, oh, these are someone else's. Look, his name's in it. You gave me the wrong one. Uh, and, and that whole sequence, I think, is incredible. There's a bit where the sewing machines sound like machine guns. Um, we really see sort of like how the the sausage of the of war is getting made. And there, the the mechanized score, the like the throbbing sort of industrial sound of the score, really works because this is the first industrial war. So having having a soundtrack mimic that, I think, is effective. Um, and that's, that's why I would stand up for it. I mostly just don't know that I agree with the choice, again, to score your anti-war movie with something that sounds like it would be the soundtrack as you spray painted, like, high fantasy art on the side of a van. (laughs) Uh, that, that's fair. That's fair. (laughs) Like the 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 takeaway that I got from a lot of the score was somebody said this sounds awesome, and but is, like, I just that's... I don't know what <laughs> I don't know what he was what his I don't know what the point was. But like that that that's the crux of Truffaut's like, argument is that and... like any any war movie is gonna have moments where you're like that's like oh that's awful but that's also really cool like my adrenaline's pumping the score is is cool. Uh, and that's that's always going to be undercutting the message, right? But then, if you're setting out to make an anti-war movie, why are you doing that? Why are you making that choice? Be- because you're making a movie, and you want to, you want like, you know, if and, and here I'm playing devil's advocate. I'm not necessarily defending this, but like, you know, if if you're going to make an anti-war book, you want people to read it. Well, it's easier to make an anti-war book because you're just describing things. You can get into the emotional headspace. Uh, things aren't as visceral. Well, what what have you. In a movie, you want people to watch it, you want to entertain, because if you don't entertain, no one's going to go see it, no one's going to talk about it. So you're stuck between this idea of, like, either you're making a documentary, or you're making, you know, a piece of art that is supposed to engage people. Maybe not entertain in the sense of, like, I felt good after that, but, like, 
you, you are doing something that is bringing an audience in who wants to engage with it. And by sure. the very nature of that, you are undercutting your other goal, which is to create something that is anti-war. Like, I think that's the crux of Truffaut's and argument. I... Oh, yeah, it, it absolutely is. Um, but I, I think that, again, I, I would push back on the idea that this really hangs together as a movie. Um, I think there are certain, or rather as a story, it is abs- It is obviously a movie. It exists on film and we saw it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think that there are certain qualifications to being a story that this movie does not meet. Um, and also, since I believe that Berger is pretty specifically on record as wanting to make this, and wanting to make this an anti-war movie, I I would question the dis, I would question some of the artistic decisions that he made in light of Truffaut, like the spirit of Truffaut's quote. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All of which kind of brings me to something that I mentioned to you before we started recording. <laughs> We've been thinking about this quote for a long time since we wanted to talk about it for the episode, and I think ultimately where I come down on, I don't know that it matters. <laughs> like if if you make a movie about a war like a wartime story movie i kind of don't know that it matters if your intent is to be anti-war or not that almost feels reductive to me like i would much rather watch a movie that has a story and fully developed characters that i feel something for than watch something that's that is just beating me like concussively over the head with the idea that like war is hell and these people die for nothing and it's brutal and bloody and awful because i think at the end of the day whether or not we make movies about war is not going to change whether or not we go to war mm-hmm. so then it's kind of like oh i don't know how much this matters so one one thing that's interesting to me is um you know, like like hearing hearing you say that, and you're you're focusing for good reason on like the viscerality, like the physicality of the war, and I think that like All Quiet on the Western Front is is renowned as an anti-war book. It's also a masterpiece of literature in general, um, and the original 1930 movie adaptation is also renowned as an anti-war movie. Um, I I can't speak to the 1930s movie. I can speak to the book. Part of that book war is is so powerful because of the the visceral descriptions of the front, which is you know hell on earth. But a lot of the rest of the po- like a lot of the power comes from the psychological trauma that these people experience and the the psychological and even physical whiplash of being cycled to and away from the front over the course of their time, you know there, which is which was something both armies did. Um, and this movie just for because it's a movie and not a book doesn't even try to grapple with in a meaningful way. I don't think Um, the book also like, because like the third act is so radically different. Um, You were, you had uh, popped in a quote of uh, Berger talking about um, the, the last scene in the farmhouse and we're just of course fully spoiling this movie. Uh, But like they um, Katia uh, Kat, uh, I guess his name isn't Katya, it's some Polish name. Uh, but uh, Paul's, like, best friend um, is killed in the movie by, like, a farmer 
a farmer's boy after stealing a goose from the same farmhouse again. Um, in the book, it's a random piece of shrapnel hits him, and then as they're heading back to, like, the medic bay, a different random piece of shrapnel kills him. And that sense of... There, I, that, to me, encapsulated my problem with the movie, which was that the book got to not just, like, the horror and the trauma, but the, like, the randomness and the banality of it all. The, like, like, because in the movie, there's a clear, like, consequences of your actions thing happening of, like, well, you kept stealing from this farmer and eventually the boy shot you. Like, it's a little bit of, like, yeah, this sucks, but, like, I don't know, man. Uh, you made this decision. Yeah, you you did steal the goose, right? Um, whereas in the book, it's like, nope, just walking down the road, shrapnel, and then as you're walking down the road to get to the medic bay to deal with the first shrapnel, second shrapnel, you know? There's nothing you can do about that. Um, and that that just feels more... I, I don't know. You you might dislike it because there is no clear, like, direct comparison, but to me it makes it a more powerful work where where you're sort of grappling with the sense of, like, not only is this all meaningless, but, like, it's all random and it's all not like bs whereas no i think it definitely detracts from the message when you have people that you know and you can make the argument that like they're starving because of the circumstances of the war but like also there are ways for them to approach that that's not just i feel entitled to steal in in the book they're (laughs) definitely stealing from local farmers like that's like scrounging for foraging they're foraging they're living off the land you know that is fully fully happening and it's it's treated as like yeah obviously we're doing that we have to you know um but it's it it, uh, honestly it was the randomness in a way that i thought made the book powerful and this made it a bit more of a like oh that sucks that the war is almost over and you got got but it it was a little too neat you know and almost a little too like moralizing well, and in that same quote, I think he talks about, like, the peacefulness of that moment, which I think is doohickey, because every <laughs> time that movie has a bit of peace in it, it is interrupted immediately by gory, violent death. Yeah. So by the end of the movie, I am very trained to not trust those movie those moments of, like, quiet or peace or whatever. It's just like, oh, something awful is about to happen. So when and, and he's trying to create the structure of the book where Paul is cycling to and from the front. So he has two weeks of hell and then two weeks in the back lines and then two weeks of hell and then two weeks in the back lines. But because of the structure of the movie, it doesn't feel that way. It feels more like you say, like, I can never trust. I can never trust the moment of peace. So, yeah, I did not enjoy this movie. All right. Uh, should we? Should... And. Yeah. I, I do just want to say, like, in general, and this will this will come into play with our, our next movie as well. Um, I am not generally a war movie person. Like, it is not my preferred genre, which is why I've never seen Apocalypse Now until now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have seen a lot of them because, again, Oscars movie yeah. fan. Oscar um, loves, Oscar loves its war movie. I just, I, I, I do think about some of the other Oscar war movies we've gotten in the past, and I can't help but compare them, and this one just really does not stand out <laughs> at all. Fair, to me. fair. Uh, yeah, I I probably rated this too highly on Letterboxd 
talking about it more, I might drop might drop my score on it. Um, I don't know if you'll drop your score on it after reading some of the interviews because you sound like you're even more down on it than your your letterbox review of it uh, made it seem. No, my two and a half, my two and a half stars will stand. Oh, you gave it um, a solid two. Oh uh, yeah, they'll stand. Um, <laughs> I I do think there are some cool shots, but that again, like the shots that I the shots that I think of, like towards the end, there's a shot that's lit all in red of mm-hmm. like an empty basement with a gun leaning against a wall, and it's like, oh, that's a haunted house. <laughs> like <laughs> the shots that I remember are the ones that he lifts wholesale from horror movies, it, it and is I a- just wish. I wish that it had had thought or intention behind it so that it like said something. Mm -hmm. It is a technically well-made film. So there's that. Mm -hmm. Um, Sure. All right. Well, speaking of apocalypse now, which you just alluded to uh, our next piece of homework was apocalypse. Now Uh, this is 19 uh, originally 1979 Francis Ford Coppola. uh, you know, loosely based on um, the 1899 novella Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, co-written by Coppola, John Milius, and Michael Herr, and eventually uh, starring uh, Martin Sheen, just the hairiest man alive, Robert Duvall, Martin Brando, and among others, Larry Fishburne, a 14-year-old who flew out to the Philippines to be in this world, this Vietnam movie. <laughs> um... Later, he would grow up to be Lawrence Fishburne. Uh, this also, is... did you say Dennis Hopper? I did not say Dennis Hopper, but yeah, yeah, man. You, how, yes. how how could I forget about Dennis Hopper, man? He's just the best part Truly. of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Harrison Ford. Uh, yes. Scott Glenn. Yeah, just in, in a murderer's row, of course. Um, uh, this movie is about... Uh, it's a movie about Martin Sheen playing Willard, who is, uh, you know, seems like sort of a wet work guy, special forces of some sort, who sent up river to deal with the wayward Colonel Walter Hertz, played by Marlon Brando. Uh, Hertz has gone crazy, is the implication, um, and uh, Martin Sheen is supposed to uh, terminate him with extreme prejudice, terminate his command. With extreme prejudice, uh, this movie is—it it was very funny. Before you even saw it, you texted me and you're like, "I have to watch this before work. It's going to be a weird fever dream." And I—I I laughed to myself because this movie is a fever dream. Um, Coppola, uh, when it when this movie premiered at Cannes, uh, Coppola said, uh, "My film is not a movie. My film is not about Vietnam. It is Vietnam. It's what it was really like." And uh, the documentary Hearts of Darkness sort of goes into that. Um, Everyone lost their mind making this movie because they went to the Philippines, shot in the jungle during the middle of a a civil war happening in the Philippines. Um, It was supposed to be like two months of shooting and ended up being like six months and took two years to edit. Absolute, absolute insane production, a famously insane production. Um, But it, it creates a movie that is like oniric in in its pacing and its structure in the visuals um my dog ozzy famously not a chill movie watcher for many scenes was just sitting directly in front of the tv bad for his eyes staring at the screen not barking um 
captivated by the that images, would worry I guess. me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he does he does that uh, with other things too sometimes, but you know. Okay. This is not the first time he's done that, but it's always funny when he does. Um uh, so the only the only reason I cannot call this movie a perfect movie is because I saw the Redux cut, which is the 3 hour and 22 minute version. Um which had a couple of sequences that I thought unnecessarily, which I thought introduced some lag to the film, uh, perhaps detracted from the experience in a negative way. Did, um, you, did you do the research to know what those scenes, like what scenes were added? Yes. Okay. I, so I, I, the, sorry, I, I was curious if you were just inherently like, man, those French plantation scenes, what was that about? <laughs> No, no, I read an interview with uh, Coppola about his final cut release. Mm -hmm. um, and the two the two sequences that he specifically cites as having been added to the Redux version that he pulled out for the final cut was the scene with the Playboy bunnies in the helicopter, which was so strange and so uncomfortable. I in it, a movie where largely I did not understand, like in a movie that largely made me say, I don't know what's happening right now. That sequence was like, I do not know what's happening right now. So it was, it was the um, second playboy bunny scene that he added, then removed the original bit where like they're, they're putting on a show and then the soldiers sort of swarm the field and they fly away. That's all in the original. Um, in the redux, we meet so them later is, up the river. Yes. Yeah. So that's the sequence that he pulled out. Right. Um, which is good because I think it just felt weird and exploitative in a way that was not that I didn't feel added anything to the experience. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also a sequence where um, Kurtz is reading a Time magazine article to Willard, who is being held captive to him, that Coppola pulled out because he said he didn't feel it was uh, relevant mm -hmm. in a in a modern context. Um. And then he also shortened the uh, French plantation sequence. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, otherwise, every problem that I had with All Quiet on the Western Front, I think this movie does perfectly. <laughs> up to up to and including using that horror film language. Like this is a monster movie, and mm -hmm. I kind of appreciated the very intentional usage like the scene where we meet kurtz for the first time is like a nosferatu sequence when, when he comes out of the shadow rubbing his bald head just dripping sweat and and brandoing all over the place is in like you know you're just a grocery boy sent to collect a bill it's just like seared in in my you know mind um not to be annoying film person guy, but here I am. The reason why all the Brando stuff was shot that way was that he was like 300 pounds and refused to lose any weight. And they're like, well, we can't have Kurtz looking like that. Uh, so they just shot him in shadow the whole time. <laughs> and, it, and it is perfect. Well, and also, like, this is Brando clearly not at his best, like, clearly at his most difficult to work with. He shows up for like three days of filming is not in the condition that he it sounds like was agreed upon or it that was, was conducive to filming. obligated to be in 
And he still, like, invents acting on the screen. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> it's like you, you, show, yeah, like you show this clip, you show, like, De Niro in Raging Bull, and you're like, great, this is how you act. Ta-da. Yeah, like, when Willard, when Willard pulls up to the compound and there are, like, dead bodies hanging from the trees and shrines with skulls all over the place, it's like, oh, this is this is like a pulp horror situation. Mm-hmm. Like this is almost Indiana Jones esque. Yes. And the thing the thing about it is that I feel like that tells me something because Coppola is actually telling a story. Those things tell me something about the experience that I'm having. Like I think it is a mistake to think that you don't need to tell a story if you're making a movie about a war like the war itself the battles themselves are not enough to for me to engage with as an audience member like i would like to watch something that has characters that i care about like when the characters die in this movie i was sad because i knew who they were you you had mentioned 1917 much earlier when we were talking about uh um all quiet and like it it has the gimmick of like all all one shot and like deacons being like give me that oscar uh again um but it's also about two guys trying to stop a, an attack like right there's a clear defined goal not only are there characters we care about but there's an objective that we understand there is an objective i don't know I, I think that that movie has the same problem in that the characters are so secondary to what they are trying to accomplish. Sure, like, but like there's two I could characters tell you that we names. can root for, right? Right, but like I could not tell you their names. I don't know where they're from. I I don't know what their they're situation is. England, <laughs> I think. <laughs> but I but I I I do think that 1917 works because the goal is so clear like like you said like that movie still has a goal it has momentum it has a point that we are getting to mm-hmm. apocalypse now has a goal it has a point and it has characters that the filmmaking tells you something about and and, and the characters and struggle with their own goal like martin no, Sheen... old-fashioned <laughs> <laughs> right like Mar- martin sheen halfway through this movie is like am i Kurt, like do i do i sympathize with kurtz like am i agreeing with this guy and then he actually gets there he's like oh no this guy's crazy we gotta we gotta stop this guy yes uh but like his his whole journey up river is sort of like reading the dossier and being like seems like he's going crazy but maybe he's seeing things that we don't like that the rest of us just aren't seeing which is like we're having a good well, struggle you know and then I think it's important that the first character you meet who's like, he's a genius man, is extremely he's... coked up Dennis Hopper. <laughs> because, like, he's, he's a he is poet. not a soldier. He is not a soldier. He is a photojournalist. Yeah. And one of the things that I think this movie does very effectively, even though Coppola very famously has said this is not an anti-war movie, which I think is hilarious. Um, But I think that this movie really does a good job of showing how that situation truly drove everyone crazy. Like, everyone in that movie is losing it in some way. Right. You you had tweeted at how amazing it is to have um, Robert Duvall shirtless throwing a a hissy fit 
Uh, <laughs> he throws a hissy fit. He throws a bullhorn in the air. Right, and like, why is well, he throwing then, this oh, hissy fit? Because he cannot go surfing, right? In the middle of a another, war zone. That's another sequence that I think got added for the redux and then removed for the final cut is when Martin Sheen and his group steal Robert Duvall's surfboard. Mm, I do not remember that. So yeah, I, I think that yeah, is it's redux. not in it's yeah, it's not in the theatrical cut. Um, and then, yeah, I think it gets taken out again. Although that was a sequence that I enjoyed because yes, they steal his surfboard. Well, and later and then there's he... a bit where Lance, Lance is like, you know, surfing down the river on the, like, you know, behind the, uh, behind the boat. Um, and never once did I ask, where did he get that surfboard? I was just like, yeah, of course. Well, and there's a, there's a sequence where they have to hide from Robert Duvall, who has flown a helicopter <laughs> over their boat to try and get his surfboard back. <laughs> uh cut for good reason but also fantastic the surfboard sequence goes on for a truly deranged amount of time (laughs) poor lance he really has a hard time in this movie like talk about everyone going crazy lance is a great example of that like he goes he like quote-unquote goes native in this you know like he joins the mountain yards in their um uh, cruelty to animals not approved sacrifice at the end, you know? I have thoughts about that, which I will get to in just a moment. But I truly thought that the ending for Lance was going to be that he stayed in the compound. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he, I think he would have if they hadn't killed Kurtz. <clears throat> um, but yes, another interesting factoid that I learned. So when they kill the bull, it's real. Yes. But they are they are filming a village who is doing that like it's not done just for the movie right so it is not it is like it's a great we, we filmed we filmed people that are doing this anyway right rather than having a bull killed just for our movie yes which makes it a little better for me yes yes good i'm, I'm glad you feel that way uh, I, I definitely think it's one of those gray area situations but uh I would fully understand if you're like, I did not like seeing them butcher a real bull in real life. Oh, no, I did. I didn't like seeing it, (laughs) but I would have liked it. I would have liked it less if it had been like if that was bull number 18 that they had butchered. Our actors straight killed a cow for no reason. (laughs) Right. right. (laughs) And again, like this was take eight. So how many cows have we gone through by this point? Wait, Uh, is that true? No, no, no. This is like, you know, they. Oh, yeah. Okay. They they didn't um, they didn't ask yes. the people to do like eight versions of their same ceremony <laughs> just to get the shot. Oh, good. <laughs> but yeah, I thought that this movie and this movie had color. This movie was dynamic. This movie is this so movie, colorful. Yes, and it's colorful in a way that I don't think. Like you, you had a comment about the um, sort of the lush jungle background being maybe more attractive and like in a visual sense yes but do i want to be there no no (laughs) everyone in that movie is so sweaty yes uh the reason why i've I've commented on martin sheen's hairiness is because he is frequently shirtless and that is one of the hairiest men alive apparently everyone in this movie is frequently shirtless yes because it's a thousand degrees (laughs) and humid (laughs) But yes, the the green of the jungle, the different colored smoke bombs that they light mm-hmm. for no reason. 
Um, the flares, like even, even I, nighttime is colorful in this movie because of the way they're shooting it. And the way you have like flares going off. And, you know, you were talking about the flares in um, All Quiet, which just evoke horror movie. And they look visually interesting. But here the flares are doing the same thing, but in a different way. Maybe because we're shooting on film instead of digital. But the sequence when they roll up to the bridge, yeah. I thought was With the Christmas stunning. lights all over and like the explosions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the whole thing also, I think, speaks to the fact that you have a group of people that are doing literally anything they can to prevent themselves from going crazy. Mm -hmm. So, like, there's one point where four of our characters, yes, including acid, um, or surfing the waves Uh on a river. Uh (laughs) Um, And, yeah, there's a sequence where four of our characters just sort of start wrestling. (laughs) And it's like, okay, we're we're doing this now. but yeah, like the the Christmas lights on the bridge, like you can see how somebody would have how somebody probably said like, "Hey, we need to make this bridge visible." I bet this would be pretty, and like that was how they spent an afternoon. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of this movie that I think just speaks to the humanity of these characters and how hard and more specifically how hard they're fighting to keep that. Yeah. Well, like, it's the humanity and the sanity. Um, I, you know, I, I was talking so much with All Quiet, where the book is is grappling with those psychological ideas and grappling with, like, the, the psychological trauma of cycling around through the front. The movie does not hit that psychicness at all, because it's just about the horrors that they see. This does a much better job at the, like, the psychic trauma of the banality of, yep, driving the boat upriver. Why? None of us know. We just got to get this officer upriver and then it's like so your mission was to go kill one of our own dudes cool 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 and then (laughs) all of us die except for the dude who's like tripping on acid all the time and is like going native all right this is good um i i had mentioned the the jungle lushness in in our show doc uh and and this is sort of me rambling. I don't know if you have anything you even like care to add to this idea, but as as much as I think this is a a fascinating movie, like it's it's a perfect movie in my mind. Um, I I don't know if it's if it is or can be an anti-war movie, and that's because I'm not certain that any Vietnam movie can be an anti-war movie. Where And I, I've thought about anti-war movies more than you have. I was very much involved in, like, anti-war uh, activism during the, the Iraq War. Um, I, I think that, the, that every Vietnam movie is an anti-this war movie. Like, it, it, every Vietnam movie is an anti-Vietnam war movie. But I think that they're often not anti-war writ large just because of the way that Vietnam sort of played with and destroyed America's psyche. Um Whereas World War One might be one where you're able to make a, a real every war is bad movie. Um, and part of that is the visceral iconography of, like, the trenches are just literally hell. Whereas the jungle, is, like, I maybe don't want to be there, but it's lush, it's pretty, it's verdant. Um, but uh, th- there's also the sense of, like, every American Vietnam movie still maintains an us-versus-them mentality. And it's about how... How dumb is it that we as Americans are here dying in this stupid jungle? What is this even for? But the Viet Cong, the enemy, are always 
present, and they're always sort of faceless enemies who we can um, dehumanize very easily. Uh, Full Metal Jacket's another good example of this one. Uh, whereas in World War One, there's much more of that sense of, like, this is a pointless war for everyone. Like, there is no—it's not just what are we, the French, or what are we, the Germans, doing here. It's what is anyone even fighting about here for? Uh, it's a little more— writ large a critique of imperialism and warfare whereas in my mind a lot of vietnam is is much more personal but that also makes it less universal um definitely a lot of rambling there not sure if you have anything else you even want to like engage with in that <laughs> very cool if you're yeah, just like I guess, cool. I guess i'm wondering if you have a movie like apocalypse now where the point is not really like the war is it's the, the war is what has created these yeah the war has what is what has created these circumstances and it is integral to what's happening like th our our characters actions are are largely driven by the fact that they are inside of this horrible war but the story is also not about that mm-hmm so I I wonder if our dialogue about war movies because I I don't want to come across as dismissive when I say something like I think it's reductive to talk about movies being anti or pro war because propaganda exists and I think that American cinema definitely has an issue <laughs> in a lot of ways especially movies that uh, talk about like more modern wars. Um, I. I had a but hard I, time coming up with any solid anti-war movie about even the 90s Iraq war, much less, like, the war on terror stuff. And, like, there's Jarhead, and there's um, the bomb movie that I'm blanking on the name of. The Hurt, Hurt, Locker. Hurt, Locker. Hurt Locker. I was um, going to say, The Hurt Locker probably comes close. And and I know Jarhead, I've, I've heard, is an anti-war movie, but also it's like, none of them really are, though. They're, you know, they're they're, like, process films in a way. Anyway, not not to, like, to, to sidetrack you. Yeah, like I I wonder if if trying to fit apocalypse something like apocalypse now where I don't think apocalypse now is trying to say anything specific about Vietnam. Like I I don't think it is trying to persuade me to feel one way or another about that particular conflict. I think it is more about um like humanity and how we keep our humanity and our sanity under extreme circumstances because heart of darkness is not set during the Vietnam war. Um, uh, no, it's, it's, set, it's, set, it's set during the, uh, the Belgian <laughs> occupation of the Congo, which is one of the most horrifying human rights uh, atrocities of all time. <laughs> which is only to say that um, Coppola is using Vietnam as the, as a like, an imprint to tell this story on because I, I don't think the point of it is to say Vietnam was bad. I think the movie just sort of assumes that we all agree on that and is like, all right, let's let us use that feeling to tell a story about these people inside of that conflict. Does that make sense? It, it does. I think I disagree with you. I partly, this movie's so interesting. I, I think that Coppola has a strong, like, you know, much much like many of his contemporaries, is is vehemently opposed to the Vietnam War and is trying to show it as an absolute nightmare of just, like, what are we even 
doing here? Like, this is a fever dream. Nobody knows what's going on. Uh, that battle at the bridge where the guy, um, you know, lobs the grenade, kills the, the Viet Cong guy, and then Charlie Sheen's like, who's your commanding officer? And they're like, aren't you? We have no idea who what's yeah. going on, <laughs> you know. Like that. That's that's like between that and uh, you know Robert Duvall blasting right of the Valkyries just so he can go surfing and like blowing up a whole town just so he can go surfing. Like that's that shows the the madness of the war. I think, and I think that that Coppola was very much hip hip to that and wanting to express that. I think that's why this was this was I think the first Vietnam movie. Uh, like a- after the war was done, like this, this predates Platoon, this predates Deer Hunter. Um, but at the same time, this was co-written by John Milius. that I'm aware of. Sorry, say again. Does it predate Full Metal Jacket? Yeah, Full Metal Jacket was like 1989, 1990. Um, okay, yeah. I don't know when things came out. I've also never seen that movie. So uh, it's hel- Kubrick. I I. We should do a Kubrick episode one of these days because he's low-key a, a hilarious filmmaker, and that is a hilarious film. It is anti-war inherently, but it's also much more... The second half gets so weird because it, you get that set, like that weird bit that like Saving Private Ryan falls into. Like, we're with this band of people, we're rooting for them, we want them to, to kill the enemy, and that's what undoes any anti-war movie. Um... But at the same time, there's a line in that in Full Metal Jacket of like, you know, a dude is just shooting a machine gun out of a helicopter indiscriminately. And it's like, how do you know who's Viet Cong and who isn't? It's like, if they run, they're Viet Cong. If they don't run, they're well-disciplined Viet Cong. It's like, okay, so you're just shooting anything and then you don't care about civilians. Great. Um, what, what I was going to say, though, is that like, I, I think Coppola is very hip to the anti-war in the anti-Vietnam bit of it. This is co-written by John Milius, who probably was also anti-Vietnam, but he's a weird, like, libertarian conservative dude who's, like, very pro-gun and, like, kind of a right-winger, but also kind of a zen anarchist self-described. Um, so I, I think this movie has a lot of viewpoints swirling around in it. Well, and again, Coppola has very famously said that he does not consider this movie to be an anti-war movie. Right. I think pretty much because of that Ride of the Valkyries scene. <laughs> like, like, the, like, that seemed right. to be... The, the problem is, like, one, once that scene is, is committed to film and then is seen, every, every dude, specifically dude, is like, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. Every, like, you know, I feel like Black Hawk Down has a similar bit. Like, anyone who sees that and then goes in the military is like, cool, so we're doing some Ride of the Valkyries? Awesome, let's blast it. Thanks, I hate it. <laughs> they did that in the Watchmen movie, and I did not appreciate it. Uh, Ride of the Valkyries specifically? Yeah. I'm I'm shocked, shocked that there's an on-the-nose needle drop in the Watchmen movie. Uh vietnam yeah 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 to the two oh, was, oh, was that was that like um, what was that when uh dr manhattan was walking through blowing up people to ride of the valkyries yeah yeah cool great good Th- yeah thanks Zack snyder uh well anything else you want to talk about frankie ford coppola certainly does know how to make a movie oh uh, he is i think he's rap principal photography on his next movie uh starring adam driver among others and it's not slated to come out this year. Maybe next year. Maybe in eight years. Who knows? 
but I, I will be there just like I'll be there for Marty's killing uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. Let's see what Coppola's got him got in him in his old age. Yeah, I I, I don't know that I have much of anything else to say. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Memorial Day, everybody. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so that's going to do us for this episode. Uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere else podcasts are found. Please like, rate, review us, tell your friends about us. As always, that's one of your homework assignments. Uh, you can find us on Twitter if you're still there at DYDYHpodcast. You can find us on Facebook if you're still there by searching for Did You Do Your Homework? You can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. And you can find us on Instagram uh, at DYDYHpodcast, I think. Uh, Martha, where can people find you? What are you plugging? Uh, you can still find me on Twitter uh, until somebody wants to send me one of those sweet, sweet blue sky invites. Ooh, same. Um, I'm everywhere on social media at Magical Martha, except for Tumblr, where I'm at the Libratrix. Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd, too, where I am writing quippy one to two sentence reviews uh, and rating all of my movies. Um, I also make a lot of very curated ranked lists. I love a ranked list. Uh, I write a newsletter approximately whenever I feel like it. That's at tinyletter.com backslash magical Martha. Uh, I have another podcast that releases on this same feed on alternating release days called Love Ya. I record that one with Pete's wife, Marin, uh, and we watch a streaming rom- rom-com or a teen movie and talk about it in detail. Our last episode was about the 2023 Hulu original Rye Lane. And our next episode, which Pete will be guest starring on, uh, is going to be on the 2022 Netflix original Do Revenge, starring um, Maya Hawk. Maya Hawk and Camila Mendes. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to watching that movie. Uh, mostly because it's a movie I would not have gotten around to seeing without a, um, a reason to. And this is a good reason to. It's very fun. I will try not to overplay my hand before we actually record the episode. Oh wait, do you like I do you a like a movie time. called Do Revenge starring is it like with with this plot summary? <laughs> is this in Martha's Wheelhouse 100%? Um speak, speaking of in Martha's Wheelhouse, uh have you heard of Polite Society? Oh, Peter. Okay. Would that be Have a, I heard of Polite Society? Would that be a I'd love you. I, I, I've not seen it, so I don't know if it actually fits the, the parameters of a love you episode, but. Uh, no, not really. Okay. If you ever want to do a Bollywood or an Indian <laughs> cinema episode, I'm in. Maybe that's, that's maybe not a bad idea. Uh, sorry, just ha- having never seen it. I wasn't sure if it like fit the thing of like teen or romance. Cause I know there are, teen-ish and romance-ish elements in it, uh, but. Yeah, your wife has very strong feelings on what makes a rom-com. Yes, she does. And (laughs) (laughs) so, but yeah, if we can think of an excuse to talk about that one on one of the shows. (laughs) I I showed her the trailer for it because I'm like, I don't know, this seems fun. And she's like, I don't know, that seems fun, but not in a like, Oh my god, I have to, like, you know, you have a younger sister, so I can understand why that movie might have been 
uh, triply uh, relevant to you, whereas that's not the case for her. Um, anyway, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O-3000. Uh, you can also give me that blue sky invite. That would be awesome. Uh, you can follow me on Letterboxd at P Romberg, P-R-H-O-M-B-E-R-G, uh, ranking, uh, or rating and reviewing movies. Uh, rank lists stress me out, so I only do them for our end-of-year episodes for this show. Um, speaking of this show, our next episode of Did You Do Your Homework is going to be one from the archives because I'm going to be in England celebrating my honeymoon-slash-five-year anniversary, thanks COVID, uh, when we come, so get ready for one of our, you know, we're going to open up the vault, re-release some old episode, one that one of us thought was interesting or relevant or cool, uh, and then we're going to come back swinging in July with something we haven't figured out yet. Uh, we've got a couple things we're cooking on, so we'll, we'll see what happens there. And I think that's going to do it for us tonight, Martha, unless you have anything else to add. Nope, thank y'all for listening. Cool. Yeah, thanks so much. And remember to... That's not how this ends. Yep, that's going to do it for us tonight. Uh, remember to do your homework, although you don't have any for next week. Class dismissed. Okay, great. Got that in the can. <laughs> you held it together remarkably well. <laughs>